Welcome to the Public Services Reform Podcast from the Centre for Market and Public Organisation. My name is Ramesh Vitalingham and today I'm talking to Sarah Smith about her research with Anita Ratcliffe on fertility and women's education in the UK. Sarah, can you start off by explaining what you mean by the word fertility? Yeah, so what we're really talking about is the number of children that women have and also um, when they have it, what age they have it. So we're basically talking about childbearing. Okay, and and now you've looked at changing patterns of childbearing across the UK over many, many decades. Yes, that's right. So the government government statistics, they produce what's known as a total fertility rate, sort of the average number of children a woman would have in a particular year. Uh, And that sort of clearly shows uh, a decline in childbearing across the population from a peak, the baby boom of the early 60s, to today, so that, that there's been a fall in the num- average number of children women have from around about three to um, around about 1.7. So that's a kind of change over time. And we were interested in looking uh, behind that overall trend at what was kind of driving the changes. Um, and basically, and, and our research and research by others highlights a sort of number of different trends. So one, uh, that the first kind of like wave of um, change was um, that women sort of started to limit the number of children they had. So among women born in the 1930s, having three or more children was relatively common. The first big change was that women, more women chose to re- reduce or limit their number of children to two. Um, so that was the first big change. And then later on, among women born in the 1950s and 60s, what we've seen is an increase in, in the number of women who don't have any children at all, so a rise in childlessness. So as I said, so the, f- the two main changes are a fall in family size, people deciding to stop at two rather than carrying on, and then afterwards an increase in childlessness and a rise in one-child families. So what, what's going on there? What do you think is driving that? Is it just changing social mores? Is it the, you know, the advent of the 60s and all that kind of stuff? The, the, the arrival of contraception? Is it, is it something to do with women are, are working much more, staying in education longer? What, what, are, what are the big forces driving this, do you think? Um, well, we tried to um, explore some of the possible drivers of change. I think, it's, um, I, mean, I think it's very hard to disentangle really what's going on because you, you can look at a lot of the associated changes um, that are occurring at the same time as the changes in fertility. So, for example, um, there was the introduction of the pill in uh, the 1960s and which became increasingly widespread in the 1970s. And that was clearly a factor in allowing women to limit their family size. Although whether the pill drove women's women limiting their family size or whether women's desire to limit their family size accelerated the pill, it's hard to really say what drives what, but clearly the pill was an important factor. Another important factor uh, that we've looked at is the changing pattern and nature of of female employment. So, for example, among the women born in the 1940s who were choosing to limit their family size to two, what you see is they basically had their children quite early in their life and then stopped, and you see a big increase in female part-time employment among those women kind of in their late 20s and 30s and then among the women later on who were born in the 1950s and 60s uh, among whom we see an increase in childlessness they were the ones who really started working full-time particularly those who didn't have children suggesting to us that these women were facing a choice between career or family and that a lot of them increasingly were choosing to have the career rather than the family so, as I said, again, you don't know whether it's the employment that's driving the fertility or the fertility driving the employment or changing kind of attitudes that are driving both. But clearly, um, you know, the, the employment and the contraception are all kind of coming together to shape uh, the sort of changes in childbearing that we see in our data. 
Now, education, do you think, is also is also a very big issue? Yes. Well, we, we know from previous research that women who go on to say um, college education have very different. Uh, patterns of childbearing to women who say leave school at 16 um, so for example they start they start their families later as you'd expect because they, they, they've been into higher education so that kind of in itself would result in a delay and more of them historically more women with uh, college education um, have remained childless so one obvious question for us was, well, we know that there's an increasing proportion of women going on to um, further education. So is this rise in female education enough to explain the changing patterns of, in, in childbearing that, that, that we see? So basically what we did is we looked, we kind of split, split women into those who went on to higher education and those who left school at 16, and then looked to see whether we could see changing patterns in childbearing within each group, or whether it was the case that it was just the shifting kind of populations between these groups that could account for the changes in fertility and uh, what we found was that there was a kind of that the biggest changes in fertility were among the group of women who'd gone on to further education so um, they were they were increasingly delaying entering motherhood and they were more likely to remain childless than than, than they were before so basically i think to, to kind of summarize that the, the story is is one of increasing polarization between educated and less well-educated women. So among um, women born in the 1940s, those who went to college and those who, who left school at 16, both of them were, sort of were likely to start um, childbearing in their 20s. They weren't likely to work full-time if they had children. They, if they worked, they'd work part-time. When you look at women born in the 60s or 70s, the story is very different. Women who leave school at 16 are still likely to begin their childbearing in their 20s and are not likely to work full-time if they have children and even at all, whereas women who go to college now are much more likely to delay until they're 30 before they start it start having children and are much more likely to try and combine motherhood with full-time employment. So really, I guess what, what, what we put it down to is the, gro the growth of careers among women who, who go on to college. You can't explain the whole of fertility changes in terms of changing education. It's the changing effect of education on what women then do in terms of career and family. That seems to have been the biggest change over, over the period. So this polarisation must have very serious implications, doesn't it, to, to divide the, the female population in this way between the those who have some education and those who, who haven't. Yeah, so, so someone's referred to, to it as, as the end of sisterhood. I'm not sure whether we go that far, but clearly we're now seeing this increasing divergence in terms of women's experiences. Um, and in terms of sort of economic consequences, um, one of the, the sort of issues that, that we'd raise is um, the effect of essentially childhood... Um, so so what, one of the things that we'd, uh, we've thought about is the effect of of college-educated women having careers on the sort of incomes and family resources available to them when they have their children. So essentially, children born to college-educated women are now born into households which have um, you know, greater income and wealth at the time of birth because these women have been working, they've built up higher incomes and higher levels of wealth. So essentially, you've got an increasing divergence in resources in the households of children born to educated and less well-educated women. Now, so, so the, the interesting thing is the effects of that on children's subsequent development. I think the research is kind of suggested rather than, than, than really clear, but it's sort of pointing to the fact that income when children are, are young matters. So, you know, if, if these children are born into households where there's more income, that's essentially saying that, that, that you might see 
consequences for children's development as a result of women, college-educated women choosing to delay having children until they're sort of better off. So this seems to link very, very closely to the whole discussion of social mobility recently about supposedly declining social mobility in this country. Yes, yes. I mean, I wouldn't like to sort of say how big a factor this is, but it's certainly in line with um, with decreasing social mobility. Essentially, educated households can afford, you know, have higher incomes when their children are born, and those children will be, you know, will be better off at birth, and that may well mean that they're better off throughout their lives, which would kind of reduce the level of mobility and, and increase the disadvantage to children born to less well-educated women. So what lessons would you draw for, for policy from this? Are there other, other things that government could do on behalf of us all to, uh, to address this polarisation problem? Yes. So, I mean, in terms of government response, I guess you could think of two different approaches. So one is obviously the, the, the need to focus on early years provision for those who are less well, less well off, um, which is which is a focus of government policy anyway. And there's increasing concern about the sort of um, advantage that, uh, that that children from better off backgrounds have, even even by the age of three. So focusing on the early years and trying to redress the disadvantage is one approach. And then also in terms of encouraging um, childbearing among educated women, because you know that they're the ones um, among whom we've seen the biggest increase in childlessness and the biggest delay in childbearing. So clearly, that the more women, educated women, are able to combine family and career, the the sort of earlier they're likely to have their children, and that the, the less we'll see a kind of continued increase in childlessness among that group. Final question, Sarah: How, how do we compare with the other countries? Have you looked at? Uh changing patterns in, in, other, in European countries and the United States? Um, do you have yes, a feel no, for what's going on there? Um, that, so I'm aware of some other research in other countries that are sort of beginning to look at similar issues. Um, in the US, um, the, the US pattern is very similar to the UK in that there's um, divergent patterns in, in childbearing between educated and less well-educated women, just like the UK. And we know that in the US, provision for maternity leave, for example, is, 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 is even is worse than in the UK, so suggesting the harder you make it to combine career and family, the the, the bigger changes you get in the fertility of educated women. And at the other end of the spectrum, in Norway, research has found that um, the trends have gone the other way. In other words, that um, the fertility of educated women is is, is more like that of less well-educated women. And as we know, they're at the other end of the spectrum in terms of maternity policies and... um, childcare provision and allowing women to try and combine family and career. So I think it's, I think it's pointing to the, the real importance of um, you know, the, the, these policies, maternity policies and childcare provision in, uh, in affecting the fertility of um, childbearing of educated women. Sarah Smith, thank you very much.